turning tonight to Psalm 91, the 91st Psalm. Looking there together, Psalm number 91. What a beautiful Psalm. Before us, we often refer to it and read it. It's one of those favorites, but there's so many things here that will help us in our praying and our trusting the Lord. Psalm 91, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up with their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under thy feet. Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. No one knows for sure who the human author of this psalm is. Some have suggested that it is Moses. In fact, they feel that He wrote both Psalm 90 and 91 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that they are an exposition of Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 27 which reads, The eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He shall thrust out the enemy from before thee and shall say that destroy them. The eternal God is thy refuge is the theme of Psalm 90 and underneath are the everlasting arms is the theme of Psalm 91. It is a psalm of the wilderness, a psalm that contrasts the permanence of God and the extreme frailty of man. Israel made a decision at Kadesh Barnea. Throughout our lives, the Lord will bring us to these crossroads of decision in the spiritual life. And they made a decision there not to do the will of God. They could have gone over short distance into the land of Canaan, a land that the Lord had promised them, had wanted to give them, a land of flowing with milk and honey, with beautiful farms and vineyards and cities. And you know how they sent out the committee? The committee brought back the negative report. They learned nothing from that committee that they did not already know. What did the committee say? Oh, there are giants in the land. The cities are walled. Uh, there will we'll never be able to subdue the enemy. And of course, uh, they when they finally did uh, go in under Joshua's leadership, the walls fell down at the Lord's doing. They didn't cause it anyway, did they? 
You see, there's no excuse for not obeying the Lord's will, no matter how formidable the situation may be. There they said an emphatic no, we will not go in at this time. As if they could decide when they would go in. But to say no to God's will then puts you outside of God's will, and that's a very dangerous place to be. They said no to the will of God to go in and possess all that He had promised and wanted to give them. And a whole generation perished in the wilderness, their choice over God's perfect plan for them. And yet all the while, the eternal God, even in His disciplining them, oh, what a precious thing, even in that 40-year hiatus, time of discipline, God had the everlasting arms underneath them. And even though He did not take away the consequences of their rebellion, He kept them and guided them and helped them the whole way. Isn't that our Lord? What a gracious God we have. One thing is for sure, Satan knows this psalm. And he, he knew it then and he memorized it and no doubt he hates it. Because there's such glorious promises here of our Lord and His might and His power. He used it. Do you remember when he used it? He took this psalm and distorted it as he always does the Word of God. You can't trust Satan with anything, especially the Word of God. He will pervert it and change it. And in an attempt to destroy the Son of God, Jesus, when he was tested and tempted that 40 days where he did not eat, and Satan came at him and he challenged him to jump from the pinnacle of the temple, and he used this proof text. The angels have given charge over you. They'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. The devil knows the Word of God, and we'd better know it and learn it. we better know the truth of it. And the child of God can can sense wrong and error from knowing the truth of God's Word. The devil masters the Word so that he can twist it and lead people astray and deceive them. Colossians tells us that. Other places tell us that. But what a beautiful psalm this is, a psalm of the secret place, we might call it. And we come to this psalm with the knowledge that with all the uncertainties of life, and there certainly are so many things we they don't know about and can't figure out, with all the problems, with all the heartaches that life brings, we want to remember this, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. We know this in trying times in verses 1 through 4. We know this in fearful times in verses 5 through 10. And we know this in tempting times in verses 11 through 16. Let's have a look at this secret place, this place of provision and safety for God's people. First of all, in trying times. Whoever the human author was of this psalm, he had found in God such a refuge, such a place of safety, such a a hiding place in, in time of trial that he wanted the world to know about it. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, In Him will I trust. Did you know that in these verses, the writer gives us four names for God? What a beautiful, comforting list of names it is. When God uses a different name, it's always to teach us some aspect of His personality or some of His attributes. And each having its own special promise attached to it or or power. First of all, He uses Most High. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. This is Elyon. And uh, it means that he owns everything. 
that's comforting to know when we have such few resources or our resources seem so meager and compared to the needs at hand. Our God is the owner of everything, and that's why our Lord Jesus Christ said, My God, through, through the Apostle Paul, My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Why? He owns everything. He owns it all. He possesses everything. God calls himself by this name some 36 times in the Bible. And it's always to remind the hearer that he has all possessions and all the resources that we need. Well, that's comforting to know tonight because if I look in my billfold or in the church treasury or in our resources, there are pretty meager things there. But that's not the, the whole story, is it? Because back of all that, back of the cruise of oil and the little bit of meal or the lad's lunch or the manna, there is a God who supplies and miraculously keeps supplying. God calls himself this so often in the scripture that we need to take note. His sovereignty and authority and ownership extends to all things. By the way, that includes you and me. Guess who he owns? It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. In Ezekiel, he, he pronounces, all souls are mine. He owns you in creation. You did not evolve. That is the major lie that Satan has sold to this generation. And it is the very reason we're on the skid road to hell tonight. I was thinking this, night, this afternoon, as you look around us, as you look, listen to the news, this world that we live in, it seems to be just an outpost of hell itself, doesn't it? Think of all the, the horror and the crime and the sin that goes on around us. But... The Lord created us. He is the creator and the sustainer. And He owns us in creation. The question is, does He own you in salvation? Has He bought you back? Has He redeemed you? He has redeemed you, bought you back. Has He done that from the slave market of sin? If so, if you are His child, whatever you're facing today, our God, the Most High, the owner of everything, including you, bends low His ear to hear your feeblest cry. And the psalmist found him to do just that. Next he uses the term the Almighty. He, he that dwelleth under the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He's still referring to God. He just uses a different name to describe him, the Almighty. And I, I don't have to tell you what that means. The Hebrew is Shaddai. Someone might say, it's all fine to know that God owns everything, but what does that to me? What, how does that help me? We might say, uh, I may know that the Queen of England is one of the richest women on earth, but what, what good does that do me? Just to know that fact. But God not only owns everything as Elion, but he is Shaddai, the, the giving God, the God who gives, who, who provides. He's the one who supplies all of our needs, as we've mentioned. The thought behind Shaddai is, is his power to provide. Not only does he own everything, but he has the ability to provide what we need as we need it. What a wonderful secret place this is. A hiding place in time of trials, during trying times. The psalmist uses another name for God in verse 2. I will say of the Lord, and this, this name here, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. This was the greatest name that God had among the Hebrew people. I am that I am. Uh, the self-existent one, without beginning, without ending. The eternal, immutable, unchangeable one. He is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, 
God of His people. His Word is back of everything He does and says. The idea here is a promise. He is the God who has pledged Himself to do exceeding great and wonderful things beyond what we ask or think on behalf of His people. Things that we cannot do for ourselves. Now, Israel made a a sobering choice at Kadesh Barnea. They decided to go back into the wilderness. Now, here's over a million people out in the elements. No secret place. No place of shelter. No walled city. Just tents and just temporary housing and living off the land. And, of course, the Lord provided for them. But can you imagine turning away from the luscious of Canaan, which was said it was likened to the garden of the Lord. We know that Eden was the most perfect environment you could have. To turn your back on that and, and to be, a, and I don't mean to be crass tonight, but it would be like turning, going that way from a mansion and saying, I'll just be a street person. I mean, what kind of choice is that? They, the, he said, go on and inhabit it. And uh, they said, no, we'll not do that. We'll just, just what? They had nothing to lean back on. As far as they knew, things cannot, that we cannot do for ourselves, provisions that we cannot purchase with our own meager resources, peace that cannot be had without price, salvation from sin that cannot be earned by human effort, so costly that it can only be received as a gift by faith, physical help in time of need. Our God makes and keeps His promises. Our Lord says, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Call unto me and I'll answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My God shall supply all of your needs. Oh, the promises of God. We live by them, don't we? We hang on. We're resting on them tonight. You may be sitting in this pew, but you're resting in the Word of God, the promises of God. What He has promised, these exceeding great and precious promises cannot be thwarted by Satan's devices or our own willful choices. God's promises, while He may not give us what He would love to give us, He still is sovereign over all and will work His will to pass. Isn't it amazing how He can do that? No enemy on earth can stop them from coming to pass. No failure on our part to perform can stop the promises of God. What a secret place we have. That's a wonderful secret, isn't it? That's what the psalmist is saying. He that dwelleth in the secret place has to do with doctrine of knowing these things, knowing God's Word. We have resources that the unsaved don't have. They don't have any of these assurances I'm telling you about tonight. But the psalmist uses a fourth name for God. Again, in verse 2, in the English, it is translated God. In the Hebrew, is Elohim. God the Creator. Oh, what a word that is. He who spoke all things into existence. And this tells of His great power. Interestingly, the word is always in the plural form with a singular verb. Now, that defies the laws of English. A plural form with a singular verb. And it would be very bad grammar if I use it in reference to anyone other than God. If I said, we is going to Florida, that's not good grammar, is it? Plural pronoun. But, but God can say, we is, because He exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yet He is one God. And so it's quite 
quite, quite proper to say it in that way in reference to him. If Elohim were singular, it would not describe all that God is. Though The name Elohim occurs some 2,700 times in the Bible. It is the, it's first used at creation. We see it there when he says, Let us make man in our image. Genesis 1 verse 26. The thought of that is power. God has the wherewithal to do for us whatever needs to be done. He's the God of possession. He owns everything. He's the God of provision. He gives us all that we need. He is the God of promise. He has pledged Himself and all of His resources to our aid us. And then He has the power. He can do whatever He's promised. Now, I can make you all kinds of promises tonight with good intention, but you know as well as I do, I don't have the resources or the power, uh, and I don't own everything either. So I really have not much help, have I? But God owns it all, and He can provide it at, at will, and He has promised, and His promises back up all of that, and what He's promised, He has the power to perform. He can save to the uttermost all who come to Him. Paul said, I know whom I believed, and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed to Him. What, what have we committed to Him? Our souls haven't, which is keeping. He is able to keep that which I've committed to Him against that day, the great day, the day of judgment. He has the power to do just that. Jude 24 says He's able to keep you from falling. The fact that you do not utterly fall away is God's keeping. The good man, the righteous man may fall, but not utterly does. He doesn't stay fallen. He will get up. Why? Because of the, the provision of God. God gives His saints the ability to persevere. And He is able to keep us from falling. That means utterly from falling away permanently. We may fail. We are very frail. And none of us can say that we walk absolutely in the straight and narrow way with all of the perfection since our salvation. But praise God we're here tonight, aren't we? Praise God that we know the Lord and we're in His Word and we understand it and we hear His voice and we're His sheep and we follow. And we follow after Him. He is able to keep us from falling away. When I look into Chris Lamb's heart and life and mind, there's nothing there that would keep me from falling. In fact, it's quite the contrary. My fallen nature pulls at me every day. Does yours not? But He is able. He is able. All you ought to do a Bible study of the able statements. He is able. All throughout the Scripture, I did a study of that one. There's a list of things that He's able to do. And He's able to keep us. He's able to save us, and He's able to keep us. Now, you can say amen right there. It's all right to say amen at the prayer meeting. What a wonderful thing. He's able to keep us from falling. And, that's not all, to present you, you know what? how He's going to present us? When Christ the Son presents us to God the Father, we will be absolutely faultless. How can that be? Because He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, we're clothed and robed with His own righteousness. And so our filthy rags of self-righteousness were taken away and the righteousness of Christ was put on us. And that's why we'll be able to stand before Him faultless, before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. I bet we will be exceeding joyful in that day, won't we? Happy to be through with this old sinning body, for one thing. This old earth, this environment that pulls at us like a magnet down to the gutter every day. He'll present us faultless there. What a hiding place this is. 
What a secret place. I want you to know that the secret place is our salvation. That's the secret place. Oh, what a blessed place that is. That's our hiding place. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. Now, there are two enemies here. The fowler and the pestilence. Now, the fowler is a person, a bird catcher, an animal trapper. And Satan is that old enemy of the soul that he tries to trap us and ensnare and, and us. We know his wiles, don't we? We know the, the, the fiery darts of the wicked one. And so the fowler is a, a person and the pestilence is, is a condition. And so our problems primarily come from those two areas, people and circumstances. We wouldn't have any problems if it weren't for people or circumstances. Oh, yes, we would. I forgot. We have ourselves, don't we? And that's the number one problem on the list. But primarily, when we look around us, people and circumstances are what we have to deal with daily. The Apostle Paul gave this testimony. He said, we're troubled on every side. That sounds like we're hemmed in, doesn't it? We're distressed, yet not distressed. We are perplexed. We've got questions, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. We look at the things which are seen, but not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Eternal God is our refuge. Paul had been stoned. I don't think I've talked to anybody tonight that's been stoned, and I hope not. I don't think anybody in my sound of my voice, there are believers all over the earth who, who have gone to go those kind of things. He'd been left for dead. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd floated around all night in the deep. He had been considered the filth of the world just for being an apostle of Jesus Christ. And you, you know that that's a really horrible description, the filth of the world, the off-scouring, the dirty dishwater, the, the, the septic tank stuff. That's what they taught, said. Paul said, we're the filth of the world. Brother Grant used to say, once you're the filth of the world, there's nowhere else to go. So, I mean, that's as low as you can get. And uh, that's what the world thinks of us tonight. By his brethren and those of power and influence in Rome, thought of him as the filth of the world. God delivered him over and over and over again, just as he did for the psalmist, from the hand of the fowler, from the wicked one. We live in a wicked world, don't we? John tells us that the whole world lieth in the lap of the wicked or the wicked one. We never, and, and when you see that, my, the picture of us, have you ever thought about that phrase, we, the, the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. It's almost, I, again, I picture my grandmother laying with her handwork and, uh, or someone doing oh, like a Rubik's Cube or something. They have it in their lap and they're manipulating it, whether it's the pattern they're making, the needlework they're doing, or the game they're playing. And Satan is doing that. He thinks that he's in absolute control. He's allowed to do what he does. But the scripture says, gives us that description, the whole world life in the lap of the wicked. We never know as we go through our daily round of life what traps the enemy is setting for our foot. But I tell you one thing, there's a, there's a trap set, set for every footstep you make. So we'd better walk circumspectly, carefully, through this landmine of this wicked world because we can set off a situation at any step. But we have a God who can deliver us from the hand of the fowler. If we trust Him, He will keep us. 
The steps of a good man are what? Ordered by the Lord. Directed by the Lord. The traps are all about us. Baited. Cleverly hidden. Ready to ensnare. Ready to set off at the, just the, the, at the slightest touch. Slightest misstep. Yet our God can lead us through them all. Isn't that a wonderful promise tonight? Yes, this world is wicked. Yes, the hour is late. Yes, people are departing from the faith and apostasy all around us. But that doesn't change one promise of God's Word. You know what? God has remained unchanged since He spoke the world into existence. The situation in Congress and what will go on there tomorrow and all that's going on there today and who's running and who's not running hasn't moved Jehovah one second. Not one one iota from his stance and his sovereign plan that he's bringing to pass. Has anything that happened on the news today changed one of God's promises? Hasn't touched the secret place, has it? He shall cover thee with his feathers. What, a, what an unusual picture. Of all the pictures in the scripture of our God, this one is one of the most unusual, but one of the most graphic to show us just how precious he is. Covers us with feathers. And under his wings, oh, now we get the picture, shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. A missionary walked through the, where a forest fire had swept through and ravished everything. It was just a black, charred area. And in that charred remains, he saw what was left of a mother hen and her nest. He kicked the carcass of the mother hen aside and to his astonishment, outran her baby chicks. They had found refuge where, underneath the protective wings of their mother, covered her, covered them with her feathers. Well, that's exactly the picture that the Lord gives here. He is protecting us. And the Lord used this same analogy to describe His love for Israel. And He deliberately gave Himself up to that, that the, the hot heat of God's wrath on the cross of Calvary, so that we beneath the shelter of His wings might find eternal refuge for our souls. And you know that the fires of hell will absolutely pass over us. We'll not even be singed by the fires of hell because we're underneath the the sheltering wings of our God. No enemy can get to us. No man can pluck us out of His hand. What a place of safety. Isn't this a wonderful secret place that we have? Oh, the storms may rage around us. We're under the shelter of His wings. Not only are we in trying times, and we have see Him in trying times, but He is also our secret place in fearful times. There in verse 5. Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror. Now our world is un- under enemy fire. We've already seen that. Satan holds it in his iron grip. Terror, debauchery. I'm not sure what's worse. The fear of all the horrible things that could take place from the enemy enemy armies, enemy attacks. We never know when that will take place. And that's a a concern. But I think just as bad or almost worse, I'm not sure which is worse, is the debauchery that is killing us. The enemy is not doing the debauchery in our country. We We might be fearful of ISIS and all the other things that we could think about tonight. But what about our sin? What about the murder of the innocent unborn? What about the travesty, the sewer, the sewers of hell flooding our cities and in our homes through the media every hour of every day? We haven't entered into the terrorist age where our enemy used to be 
we would say in a certain country. You could pinpoint the country and know the location, and now it's everywhere and nowhere, and it's a very a puzzling thing. We have entered uh, this where terrorist organizations and plots to destroy are on the news every day. There's not a day that passes we don't hear something of that. 9-11 is embedded in our minds. We live with the question of what's the next target? You know, It was the trade towers. What other huge event like that is bound to take place at some time? And that's just, we know that we expect it, don't we? Sophisticated weapons and unheard of suicidal loyalty. See how demented people are to take their own lives in such a way. All because of the lies of the devil. The psalmist also lived in violent times. We, we think that our age is the most violent time, but there have been other times of great violence on earth. If the writer is Moses, he just experienced the horrible slavery of, of Egypt and the escape through the Red Sea. That's a pretty violent experience, wasn't it? To come through with, with Pharaoh's armies breathing down your, your back and the, the terror there. The psalmist said, Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night. For some reason, the terror is worse at night, isn't it? The darkness makes it worse. There is a secret place. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. What a state. What does that mean? These are, are verses of a hymn from the hymn book of Israel we need to remind ourselves. These are not gospel songs written for those who have put their trust in the work of Christ at Calvary. They're the old Hebrew hymns written under the Old Covenant. And we have to be careful that the Old Covenant and the promises to Israel are not exact as they are to the promises of those under the covenant of grace. And by that I mean some erroneously teach that the blessings of Israel are the blessings of the church today, but the Old Testament blessing for Israel included national prosperity. God promised to bless His people and their prosperity. And divine protection. Now, Israel was absolutely invincible as long as they were obedient. They were only taken into exile after their prolonged and repeated sins of idolatry. And finally, as a judgment, Jehovah, it wasn't because uh, he he allowed the, the exile to come as a discipline, not because he wasn't in control and couldn't stop it. And as long as Israel walked in step with God in obedience and reverence, he told them, trust and obey. As long as you keep the idols out and you obey my law, you'll be the head and not the tail. No one can come near you. You'll have a you'll plant, enjoy vineyards that you did not plant. You'll have the, 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 the luscious land. No famine will come to you. In fact, Jehovah said, if you go without rain, you better start doing inventory. There's a problem. There's a reason for it. He'd so promised Israel that they would know if, if rain was withheld, that he was displeased. And that's why Elijah finally said, well, you promised that you were going to withhold rain, and you've not done it. And God said, okay, I was waiting for someone to remind me of my word, and he withheld the rain, didn't he? That was God's promises to Israel. He's not made those kind of promises of weather and uh, national prosperity as he did to Israel. Now, we need to keep that in mind when we study God's word. His promise of protection to the soul, the spiritual promises are ours. But these literal physical and uh, wealth promises were made. There was no nation on earth that could defeat or successfully invade Israel. Try as they might. Time and time again they were thwarted until the Lord said, okay, go ahead and get them and take them into exile because they need to be disciplined. 
the godly Jew could legitimately and literally claim the promises of Psalm 91 in an hour of danger when the enemy was invading the land or trying to get through the gates of Jerusalem and expect that neither flying arrow nor pestilence could reach him. But I want to remind us in this church age that we're not the Old Testament Hebrews. We are New Testament believers. We're Christians. For us, these blessings are primarily spiritual rather than national and temporal. Now, God does supply our needs, doesn't He? But these exact promises in the exact way that He made to Israel are not, do not apply to us. But oh, for the soul, for the inner man, these promises are just as real. God has not promised us immunity from persecution, for example. But He has promised to go with us through the fire and flood and the fear. He whispers, Lo, I'm with you. Our promise is I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a literal promise for us in the church age. And he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We have a secret place, don't we? We have a hiding place in our salvation. And lastly, we have a hiding place in tempting times. Times of tempting. We see that in verses 11 through 16. Here enters our ancient enemy, that old serpent, the devil. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we meet him. He does not often appear in person in the Bible. It's amazing. We speak of him so often. But you know that Satan only speaks recorded in the Bible three times. But his influence is everywhere. He, in this world, under his influence, we can expect temptation. We are his enemy. Our enemy will not leave us alone. The scripture tells us he leaves for a while. But he's relentless. He comes back again and again. In fact, we will never be through with him until we enter into the gates of glory. Can you imagine the shout of exaltation exaltation, when the old serpent is cast into the lake of fire forever and ever? Oh, what shouts of praise that will be. But until then, he will tempt and test and torment the people of God. The lines are drawn. We're not ignorant of his devices and his intent. He will even quote scripture to lead us astray. He can transform himself as an angel of light and come preaching and and quoting Bible verses. Look at all the major religions. Look at all the cults. All founded in some half-truth, peace here and peace there, and people follow it by the droves. Droves are... The majority of people are in religion. The majority of the people aren't atheists on earth today. We think of atheism and disbelief. No. Most people believe something. Most people are a member of something. Satan has uses religion as his most perfect way of ensnaring the souls of men. He misquotes the scripture to confuse us. Isn't that what he did to Eve? Did God really say that? If he said that, did he mean that? And that's what people are saying today, to rewrite all the laws of God. All the the principles of God's Word. I want you to know, child of God, that God has promised us an escort home. That does not mean that we can foolishly or presumptuously go against God's will and expect no consequences. He's never promised that for a child of God. If I go up here and lay down in 10th Avenue tonight saying, God will protect me, He's my God, He may very well let somebody squash me on 10th Avenue. Now, He may have the people give him sense enough to go around me, but I can't use the verse that he'll give his angels charge over me, so I'm going to lay down here and show you how, how, what a, how much faith I have. That's stupidity, 
It is that is wrong, and uh, that's that's not what the verse is talking about. Our Lord didn't even do that, did he? He didn't jump. He could have jumped off the temple, but he never performed a miracle to entertain or to even to uh, to meet against Satan's accusations. In fact, the Bible tells us he just quoted a verse, didn't he? In fact, when Michael the archangel was arguing with Lucifer over the body of Moses. He didn't bind him and all those things we hear about people doing today. If you can bind the devil, he doesn't stay bound very long, does he? He's always out, back out again. This is, you know, all that foolish. There's not a place in the scripture where that's taught. What, what, what are we to do? Michael, the archangel, what did he say? The Lord rebuked thee, Satan. The only thing you should tell him is the Lord will rebuke thee. You quote the scripture and that has all the power of heaven behind it. One little word will fail him himself he tried to get the very son of god to throw himself off from the heights of the temple quoting this scripture the whole way oh he's a bible scholar isn't he that if he did so that god would protect him but that's not what this verse means it means that god will escort his children home hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation. Now, we don't know fully how all that's done, but we know this, that they are flames of fire, ministering spirits who help God's people in all of our pilgrimage journey and will escort us home one day. We won't know until we get to heaven how much we owe these mighty unseen angels who are out of our sights, We don't perceive them as such. Who watch over us and minister to us all the way home to heaven. One striking example, uh, John Phillips writes about the life of David Brainerd, the missionary to the Indians, Susquehanna Indians. One day he cast himself, he was so overpowered by their lostness and his inability to communicate with them. He threw himself down by a stream to rest as the evening shadows begin to steal across the sky. He watched some beavers build a dam across the stream, but other eyes were watching him. He didn't know. A party of warriors was sent out to kill him for watching him and biding their time. Presently, they drew near. The pale face was on his knees talking to the great spirit in the sky. As he prayed, they saw a rattlesnake glide right up beside David Brainerd and lift its ugly head back ready and its forked tongue out flickering right near his face about to strike and David Brainerd was in so uh, wrapped up in prayer he didn't even know it so deep in prayer then without apparent reason the rattlesnake glided away and disappeared in the underbrush the great spirit is with him said the Indians and they too stole away The next morning when Brainerd entered the Indian settlement, the whole tribe came out to meet him and gave him a prophet's welcome in their midst. It was just one incident, one of the few revealed instances of our angel escort home. Perhaps he he ends that illustration saying, if we spent more time in prayer as David Brainerd did, we would know more about these things and these deliverances. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. 
I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. The devil tempts us to bring out the worst in us. God allows it so that he might bring out the best. All along our pilgrim journey, pitfalls and trials will test our faith. You might be in a great trial just now. But our protector, our powerful, providing, promise-keeping God will lead us all the way home. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I might tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God trod gladly into the night. And he led me toward the hills in the breaking of the day in the lone east. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. May the Lord help us to take these precious promises to heart and plead them before his throne of grace.